What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. At least 22,600 people have been confirmed killed in Gaza and 57,910 wounded in Israeli attacks since October 7th. Thousands more feared dead under the rubble left behind by airstrikes. Strikes. We have spent the last three months spending Monday mornings on law and disorder covering Palestine, both the progression of the genocide as well as the global resistance movement to stop it. We continue that conversation today with our guests. We are joined by Rami Curry, a distinguished public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut and a journalist and author with 50 years of experience covering the Middle East. Good morning, Rami. Hey, good morning to you. Um, okay, Rami, I want to start with the events from over the weekend. The Palestinian Health Ministry announced that 122 people had been killed in one day, 225 Palestinians killed in total from the 5th to the 7th, 296 people injured due to Israeli attacks. I already talked about the death toll being over 22,000 in almost 100 days of the siege. Your reactions to the latest numbers? Well, my, my main reaction is the... Uh combination of the barbarity of the Israelis and the um, equal um, sort of barbarity of the United States and Great Britain and others and the ones who openly support it and allow it to do this with, with military aid and financial aid and political cover at the UN. Uh, the fact that this can go on now for over three months at this rate of 150, 200 people killed every day, the numbers don't really mean anything to the people overseas, or at least in most of the West. Uh, it's, uh, when you see the actual f- pictures and videos of families and um, individuals and <clears throat> bodies, and um, on the uh, mostly you get it on, on Jazeera and other um, uh, areas uh, of uh, places and social media that, that actually are in Gaza and cover the events, it's uh, stunning, uh, the level of inhumanity that is now routine, uh, and there's no clear sight of how this is going to end. So it really is a is, is a profoundly important moment for uh, for <clears throat> the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, the Western world that supports it, uh, supports Israel, and the global uh, mechanisms of order and uh, conflict resolution and. Uh, norms of law and things like that. But these obviously mean nothing uh, when we see this kind of situation uh, continuing. And it's just, it's, it's, it's terrible, uh, you know, pain and perplexity at how this can be allowed to go on. It's a comment on, really, on human nature, uh, as well as on the specific policies of different people. Rami Curry, we know Israel has intentionally been targeting the medical infrastructure in Gaza, and there are reports now that there are hundreds of patients and medical staff that has been basically disappeared from Al-Aqsa Maros Hospital. Do we know anything about where they are being taken and then the impact on the hospitals as wounded continue to flood uh, the institution? We don't know where they're taken, and, and this is a real free-for-all for the Israelis. They can go in there and do anything they want. They can kill people on the spot. They can go into people's homes. They can bomb them uh, through missiles from, you know, miles away. Uh, they can they can really do anything they want, kill as many people, capture as many people, torture people, humiliate entire communities. 
uh, with really no accountability. Um, so we don't know where the people are who have been abducted. There are reports of uh, areas uh, where the large numbers are being held, and you see some pictures on uh, social media, verified pictures of uh, large numbers, you know, 50, 100, 200, mostly men, Palestinian young men who were made to strip down to their underwear or naked. Um, and uh, these, some people have called them concentration camps. I wouldn't go that far, uh, but they're certainly uh, depraved detention uh, camps that the Israelis have created. Uh, and this raises, raises again, ser- serious moral issues um, about what Israel uh, is doing. And, and Israel claims to be the state of the Jewish people of the world. So it's really, um, uh, in, in one instance, it's, it's a big challenge to uh, Jewish people all over the world to, to react to this. Uh, some of them have, like Jewish Voice for Peace and others have done terrific uh, resistance work and, and protest work, uh, but the mainstream have not, and, and, the, and the establishment uh, all over the, the much of the Western world, including Jewish people and groups, have actively supported what Israel is doing. The second point of your question is that the health system has been essentially decimated. There are very, there's a few handful of hospitals in the south of Gaza that work part-time. They're missing a lot of the needs they need, the things they need for basic health care. Um, and uh, and the, the bulk of them have been either destroyed or abandoned. The Israelis force people to get out by shooting at them. And there are cases in the north in some of these hospitals uh, where Israeli snipers were shooting into the hospital and shooting nurses who were at work. I mean, it's, uh, this, the depravity of the, what some of the Israeli troops have done uh, is stunning. Um, and uh, at some point, there will have to be an, uh, a reckoning. Uh, there has to be some accountability uh, down the road. And whether this is done at the International Criminal Court or courts somewhere else or in the public media, I don't know. Uh, but at some point, this kind of uh, cruel, uh, criminal, uh, vicious behavior uh, that is, uh, you know, starving uh, uh, a couple of million people and depriving them of water and medicine. This kind of behavior uh, is not something that can be just allowed to happen and say, oh, well, these kind of things happen in a conflict. Um, so th- th- there's a lot of issues that have been raised by what the Israelis are doing in healthcare. They've killed uh, about 100 jur- journalists and they've been targeted. These are targeted assassinations. They've killed uh, about 100 Palestinian journalists and a few in Lebanon and elsewhere. Uh, so these things have to be really looked at in terms of w- what is Israel trying to do, and it seems that it's trying to destroy any capability for Palestinians in Gaza to reestablish their normal life with no no medical care, um, no serious infrastructure for water and other things, electricity, and the universities are being destroyed. Um, and professionals are being shot. So these, there's huge issues here that uh, the world has to grapple with. There's a bunch of directions uh, I, I could go um, from your answers there, but but you mentioned accountability and you mentioned the media, and it came out late last week um, that CNN's news coverage, CNN here in America is supposed to be, you know, this left-leaning uh, progressive 
um, news station, it, it, it was revealed that their coverage about Israel and Palestine is run through and reviewed by the CNN Jerusalem Bureau, which is subject to the IDF censor. Your thoughts and reactions to that? Well, first, I wouldn't uh, call CNN a, a progressive uh, station. They're, they're very uh, traditional mainstream American media, which, so whether you're on the right or the left or in the middle, and I would put them right of center, certainly, generally. <clears throat> but like all mainstream media in the U.S., they essentially mirror what the U.S. State Department and White House and Defense Department are saying, which mirrors what the Israeli government is saying. Um, so there's no question that the, uh, the, the the work that CNN is doing, uh, even other than the stories that come out of Israel, is is deeply biased, uh, distorted, incomplete, um, and, and out of context. And anybody who follows CNN or most of the mainstream media in the U.S. is getting a distorted picture. But this has been going on for almost a century since this conflict started about 100 years ago. So it's not new, but it's tremendously um, uh, significant because it's happening in the context of a genocide by Israel. And, and of course, the International uh, Court of Justice is now going to look at the uh, accusation by South Africa of genocide by Israel in, a, in the coming days. The hearings will start. You, you, I want to go back to this accountability um, issue inside of the media. I mean, at the beginning of the conflict, we saw mainstream media reporting all sorts of horrific lies. Can you connect the headlines um, that we are consuming, that, that the masses are consuming, to the fueling of the genocide, to, to its contribution to what is happening? Well, the main problem with Western media, and I know it intimately, I studied at a, at a really fine journalism school in the United States, college. I've worked with, you know, the, over the years, I worked for the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, I've written for the New York Times, uh, NPR. I've, I've dealt with most of the serious mainstream media and a lot of the alternative and progressive media. So I know it really well. And I know the situation in Palestine really well because I am Palestinian. And I've spent most of my career in the Middle East. And the main problem is that the media, in the, the mainstream media in the U.S., with a few exceptions only, like the U.S. government, do not recognize the Palestinians as full human beings who have the same rights as Israelis. It's very simple. And this is reflected in the, in the headlines and the stories and the sourcing and the quotes. I mean, there are studies done that show that People like the New York Times or the New Republic or the Nation or Northern Nations a bit better, but others over the last 20, 30 years, only when they've written uh, pieces on Palestine, say op-ed pieces or analyses, only about 1% or 2% of them were actually written by Palestinians. The majority were written by Americans or Israelis or somebody else. So the Palestinians are really the invisible people of our generation. Uh, they are there, but they're not really seen and acknowledged uh, in the media. And then, uh, uh, again, I say with some exceptions. Uh, and you see it when you get a headline that says 20 Palestinians uh, die uh, in uh, battles in Janine. Uh, well, there was no battles in Janine. There was an Israeli army assault on Janine camp 
which killed these 20 Palestinians, assassinated them with bombs and other things. And there was no serious, you know, back and forth. There wasn't a battle at all. But this is the kind of uh, thing that you get. The Palestinians die passively and anonymously. And when an Israeli dies, you get tremendously powerful emotional coverage of the person, their family, their background. You know, and, and and this is what good journalism should do, but it should do it for both sides in the conflict, that they tend to do it mainly for Israel. And this is a problem. For those of you just tuning in, this is Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, and I am in conversation with Rami Khoury, a distinguished public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut and a journalist and author with 50 years of experience covering the Middle East. Um, Rami, I want to turn our attention now to what is happening at the Israel-Lebanese border. Um, Over the weekend, Israel killed Hamas leader Saleh al-Arori in Lebanon. Um, What kind of blow is this to Hamas and how has Lebanon responded? Well, first of all, this kind of uh, Israeli assassination of of Palestinian leaders um, is not new. They've been doing this really since uh, since the 1960s or so. And, I mean, they even assassinated before Israel was created or during the creation of Israel. They assassinated uh, British uh, colonial officers. They assassinated the first UN mediator, Count Folk Bernadotte, in 1948, the, the pre-state Israeli militias killed them. Um, so this is a routine a routine uh, practice by uh, Israeli state forces or before them the Zionist uh, militias that helped to create the state. Um, and uh, it doesn't really have any significant impact. It has a little bit of emotional impact because you're losing, uh, for Hamas, this is a, uh, a really prominent, effective leader who has played a big role in their uh, military resistance, especially and their coordination with Hezbollah in Syria and Iran. Uh, but the, but these uh, groups like Hamas, like Hezbollah, uh, these uh, sort of non-conventional warfare resistance movements, they are set up uh, in, in a way that anticipates these kinds of assassinations. And therefore, the command structure, first of all, is very diversified, um, and the operational systems of their fighters are based on local groups, um, so if you go and shoot a, a leader somewhere, the rest of the system keeps working and the leader is replaced uh, immediately. And we've seen this over the last 30, 40 years. Hamas has only been in existence about uh, 30 years or so. Uh, Hezbollah also, they came into being in the 1980s because of Israeli occupation of, of Palestinian land and, and Lebanese land, by the way. So um, the, the, the track record of Israel assassinating their leaders tells you that when they assassinate somebody, that person is replaced by another person immediately, and the replacement, the new leader, tends to be more militant than the previous one. And at the same time, over time, which is so clear now with what Hamas has done and others, is that these these groups develop much higher technical uh, capabilities in military warfare, intelligence, uh, and other uh, communications. That's why they're able to, uh, uh, to challenge the Israelis now in a way that they couldn't 30, 40, 40 years ago. So assassinating people only uh, replaces them with better people, more effective people, and heightens the popular support for the movement by the by the publics, whether they're in, in Lebanon or um or Palestine, or what might happen soon is if the Americans or the Israelis 
assassinate some people in Yemen because the Yemenis are uh, fight, firing rockets at uh, ships that are linked to Israel to support Gaza as these ships go through the Red Sea. So it's possible that Yemeni leaders will be assassinated, and that'll simply increase the support for what Yemen is doing among the uh, people there. I've been trying over the last few weeks to to unpack um, where Lebanon sits in this, and particularly where Hezbollah sits in this. Can you explain to my listeners <clears throat> what who Hezbollah is and what role they are playing in this current situation? Uh, Hezbollah is a uh, Lebanese Islamist uh, militant group, uh, social services group, local governance group. They started in the 19, early 1980s. They came into being from a, a conglomeration, a convergence of uh, several smaller uh, groups that worked in the south of Lebanon to push back against the Israelis who were constantly attacking South Lebanon in the 70s and early 80s because the PLO had some bases there. So Lebanon, South Lebanon was constantly attacked and, and so often occupied by the Israelis. And these uh, groups that had started their life as really social justice movements and social services movements. Uh, Hamas and Hezbollah both were local uh, Islamist groups who who relied on their Islamic heritage to help their own people and other people in society, in education, medical care, uh, food, water, etc., social services. They took on the role of political militancy later when the Israelis... Uh, kept attacking them, whether in Gaza or in South Lebanon. And South Lebanon, Hezbollah, in the, around after the Israeli occupation of 1982, uh, they gradually emerged as a stronger group. The Iranians, after the revolution in 79, helped them with technical aid, training, etc. Uh, and, and Hezbollah then became stronger and stronger in the 1980s. And ultimately, working with other Lebanese uh, resistance groups, they pushed the Israelis out of South Lebanon. They, they left uh, 2000, and, uh, 2000, I think it was, the Israelis pulled out of uh, South Lebanon, which they had occupied for something like 18 years. Um, and, and they are a very uh, proficient, militant movement that has uh, really quite extraordinary technical capabilities at the military level, to the point that in their last war in 2006, when I was in Beirut and, and experienced it, they forced the Israelis into a ceasefire. You know, the Israelis went into South Lebanon, just like they're doing in Gaza. Now. They went in saying, we're going to destroy Hezbollah. Uh, we're going to destroy the, uh, the Lebanese resistance. And of course, they couldn't, because this is a popular resistance that's anchored in local society and reflects the sentiments of the vast majority of the local, uh, of the local people. Uh, so it's like saying, you know, uh, if in the 1970s, say, uh, we're going to kill Martin Luther King and that'll stop the civil rights movement. Well, it doesn't, because what Martin Luther King was expressing and uh, all the other leaders uh, of the civil rights movement was a sentiment that was deeply in, uh, ingrained in society. And killing one or two leaders doesn't do anything. So the Israelis haven't learned this lesson yet, which is amazing. Uh, so they, they, so Hezbollah has emerged as a very, very uh, efficient, proficient, technically advanced um, military force that forced the Israelis in, in uh, 2006 to have a ceasefire. 
And they've held that ceasefire pretty much ever since. And there's a kind of unspoken rules of engagement, which uh, actually at one point they were codified in some negotiations. But they, they're both uh, able to fight very devastating wars if it comes to it. But I think both Israel and Hezbollah want to avoid that because the damage will be mostly to civilian and national infrastructure, um, whereas the actual fighters would be able to protect themselves. So so this is the why Hezbollah is so important, that they've forced a deterrence situation, a truce situation um, uh, with the Israeli army, which is far more powerful and well-equipped uh, than they are. And now Hamas is kind of... Uh, moving in that direction, they haven't achieved quite what Hezbollah has, but they've uh, actually, you know, been able to um, protect their uh, uh, people and their equipment for three months now of devastating Israeli attacks unparalleled in modern history anywhere in the world. Nobody has done this uh, uh, to the savage extent that Israel has with direct, uh, eager, public uh, and vocal American support. Um, and the uh, Hamas folks are starting to reach levels of sophistication that Hezbollah has already. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think the Israelis are kind of losing it. They're, they're, they're a little bit desperate because in three months of, of um, incredibly vicious attacks and subjecting populations to starvation sieges and stuff like that, they haven't killed any Hamas leader. I mean, they assassinated... Um, Aruri in Lebanon the other day, but they've done that for years, assassinate people. But they haven't caught any of the main leaders in Gaza or in other places. They haven't released any prisoners other than through negotiations. And they haven't destroyed Hamas's military ability to keep firing missiles and to fight back against the Israeli troops on the ground. So it's quite extraordinary that Israel, with all its bravado and all its might, has not been able to achieve any of its three main goals. And that's why they started pulling out some of their troops, and they're going to try to recalibrate um, and come up with some uh, mumbo-jumbo uh, explanation of what they're doing. But what they're doing is starting to retreat because they haven't been able to achieve their goals. And this is exactly what happened in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Um, and the last point I'd make here is that what's really significant for anybody interested in following this situation is that groups like Hamas and Hezbollah or the Houthis in Yemen, whose real name is the Ansarullah, that these groups uh, all coordinate with each other, they help each other technically, training, etc., equipment, they manufacture a lot of their own uh, material. Um, they're not as dependent uh, on Iran as they were at the beginning when Iran helped them get going. And they're coordinating together now, uh, we're creating a kind of loose regional network of uh, militant groups that push back against Israel, against the United States, and anybody else who, who gets involved uh, in the Gaza situation. Uh, this is uh, new. We've never had such a situation before. The Israelis don't know quite how to deal with it. They've, uh, there was a day last week, a couple of days, when the U.S. and Israel, which have to be seen as one group now, they're, they're really one force, especially when Biden went into the Israeli war room at the beginning of the war. Quite an extraordinary uh, uh, event. Uh, you know, it's like uh, so somebody going into Hitler's war room in World War II when they were planning the battle to take over Europe. Uh, so Biden went into the war room of the Israelis, which is a pretty strong statement of the support that uh, the U.S. is giving. So Israel and the U.S. really have to be seen as one 
And they were fighting at, at, in a few days simultaneously against six different groups across the Arab world, in Lebanon, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Yemen, in Syria, and in Iraq. It's, uh, this is unprecedented. See, some of these engagements were minor, <clears throat> you know, occasional rockets, occasional uh, assassinations. But this having to fight six different militant groups at once is something new. And the Israelis, I think, are freaking out a little bit. They don't quite know how to deal with this. Their bravado and, and their nuclear weapons don't particularly deter people. And this is the lesson that um, that colonial powers uh, and imperial powers like the U.S. and Israel simply don't learn, that, that normal human beings do not like to be colonized, occupied, subjugated, laid siege to, starved, beaten, tortured, imprisoned in mass, assassinated, uh, and denied their basic humanity. They do not like that, and they fight back. And this is exactly what we're seeing uh, in, in, in Gaza and the West Bank and, and other places. And I fear that we're reaching a peak in this uh, conflict between Zionism and, and uh, Palestinian Arabism, or Zionism and Arabism, Israel and the, the Palestinians. This conflict has been going on politically and militarily for about 100 years, and I think this is close to the peak, uh, and terrible days may, may uh, be ahead for both sides. Uh, so hopefully some more reasonable people around the world will step in and try to mediate a ceasefire and then a negotiation to release all the prisoners in Israel and all the hostages in Gaza, and then talk about the underlying political differences that created this conflict um, in the past, uh, because, you know, you have to go back to the 30s and 40s, um, not just to October 7. Uh, so this this is really where we are uh, today, and um, uh, it's going to be very ugly until it gets too ugly for decent human beings around the world to, to make an effort to uh, stop the fighting and promote a negotiated resolution of the conflict, which would no longer necessitate neither what Hamas did on October 7 nor what the Israelis have done since October 8. Yeah, I, I think that I would argue that you one would not be a decent person if things are not already too ugly. Um, you mentioned you think that we're reaching a peak. I would agree with you. Um, and then, of course, there's the other side of that peak. And as fears among world powers and other Arab nations um, grow, um, that this conflict is going to spread uh, across the region, it seems like there's a bunch of folks scrambling to find a solution. Um, your thoughts about what is on the other side of that peak? Who governs? Who rebuilds? Who pays for the rebuild? Well, it's pretty obvious that the Palestinians have to govern themselves. They will accept technical assistance from uh, all kinds of uh, Arab and international sources um, th that uh, they have to govern themselves. I mean, this uh, harebrained idea of, of the American government and the Israelis and others, that you have to bring somebody else in to help them govern. The, the Palestinians, anybody who's been to Palestine and knows Palestinians knows that they're extremely sophisticated, uh, able people. And that's why Israel is trying to, this killing the journalists and the doctors and the university professors, bombing the universities, bombing cultural centers, uh, because it, it's trying to erase that class of professional 
capable Palestinians in Gaza, or make it so ugly there that those who who can will leave. And this is exactly their policy in the West Bank uh, as well. But the Palestinians are very uh, fully able to govern themselves. They've done it for many times throughout history and in recent times even in the West Bank and places. Uh, so the, uh, the key to what happens after the fighting stops uh, is to initiate a serious, credible negotiation that addresses the core grievances and demands of both the Israelis and the Palestinians. That's the only way that we will get anywhere. Similar to what happened in South Africa or Northern Ireland, those were tough conflicts. They ended uh, because you had serious negotiations by uh, credible uh, leaders, and nobody went to the South Africans and and and, and said, "Oh, you, you, we're going to negotiate with you, but but we you can't have uh, the ANC or Mandela involved in the negotiations." I mean, that, you know, of course they didn't say that because they realized it was. Uh, it was what a fool would say. Uh, but the Israelis are acting like fools, and the Americans uh, tend to follow their foolhardy ways. And they're saying, well, you know, Hamas has to be not involved in anything. Uh, we want these people or those people, as if we're truant you know, teenagers uh, who can't handle our own uh, life. But these are, this is part of the problem, which I mentioned before, that Israel and the United States and some other people, but those two mainly do the government of the United States, I should say, because a lot of people in the U.S. are fair-minded. But the government of the U.S. and Israel do not see the Palestinians as uh, human beings who have equal rights as the Israeli people. Uh, and and okay. that has to change. Yep. All right, Rami, I've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>